It's time to continue the ABCs and now Ds of Jaguar racing history on the classic sports car. Welcome to the classic sports car. A tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Hello everybody, this is Tom and welcome to the latest episode of the Classic Sports Car, episode number 10. Last episode, we started talking about the history of Jaguar racing and connected it to a topic that I had discussed on a previous podcast regarding the continuation vehicles that are available now from the makes such as Aston Martin and Jaguar and a few others and started looking at the original vehicles and some of their history to try to get an understanding of what would make these vehicles in the original form so interesting and so valuable that it would warrant continuation vehicles that are still selling in an excess of a million dollars. So in this episode, we're gonna take a look at the Jaguar D-Type continuation uh, from the previous episode where we looked at the Jaguar C-Type. But before we jump into the history, Let's look at some recent happenings that have taken place over the last couple of months in the classic sports car world. First off, an article I read over at MotorOne.com, and this connects to the continuation vehicles that we've been discussing in the previous couple of episodes. And this one starts off with a headline that says, Austin Healey returns as ultra-expensive resto mod packing 185 horsepower. I'll read you some of the contents of this article. It starts off, if you happen to have an Austin Healey in need of some TLC, you might want to ship it over to UK, where Caton, hope that's how you pronounce it, it's C-A-T-O-N, Caton will revive the iconic sports car. Limited to only 25 hand-built conversions, the rest of mod is based on the 104 BN1 model sold between 1953 and 1955. The vehicles are being pampered by the same team responsible for the bodywork of Jaguar's D-Type and XKSS continuation cars. Power of the modern-day Austin Healey comes from a 3-liter, 4-cylinder engine producing 185 horsepower and 195 foot-pounds of torque. That might not sound like much by today's standard, but we should point out the car weighs only 2,028 pounds. It uses the original engine block with everything else revamped and refurbished to zero miles. Some more of the specs for this Austin Healey. It says the engineers also install bigger carburetors, a full steel crankshaft, and high compression pistons. In addition, the open-top British machine gets a side exhaust setup and aluminum front fenders. The engine delivers power to the wheels via a new five-speed manual transmission, thus replacing the original three-speed box with overdrive. By redesigning the transmission tunnel and removing the spare wheel, Caton has made it a more usable sports car. In addition, the windscreen sits a bit higher now for added wind protection, but there's no top whatsoever. In addition, you also don't get heating or radio, but at least the reconfigured pedal box improves the driving position. Stopping power is provided by modern discs rather than the old-school drum brakes of the standard car. It rides on 72-spoke Barani black alloy wheels with period-correct design and retro-looking Michelin tires. Caton explains it took a whopping 2,000 hours to complete the first prototype as virtually everything has been revised. There are modern anti-roll bars and coil springs at the front, while the rear axle has retained the leaf springs. 
The styling has been subjected to changes as the bumpers have been remodeled to lend the Resto Mod a cleaner appearance. Those retro-looking headlights employ LED tech, while all the seams and beading have been removed for a smoother look. Keaton also got rid of the external boot hinges by switching to an internal setup with gas struts. To further clean up the design, the Austin Healey Resto Mod has lost the trunk handle since accessing the cargo area is now done using a modern key. As you can imagine, these won't go for cheap. Caton is asking an eye-watering 474,000 pounds, including the donor car, which works out to approximately 616,000 US dollars. The reborn Austin Healey will celebrate its public debut at Salon Privé, London, scheduled to take place. That was back in April 21st through the 23rd of 2022. So for a little over $600,000, you can get almost a brand new Austin Healey 104. Of course, you've got to provide the donor car. Here's another British car resto mod that made the news back in April of 2022. David Beckham has given his son this electric Luna's resto mod, and this is from topgear.com. So David Beckham, the soccer star's son, got married and as a wedding gift. He received an electrified Jaguar XK140 created by the British resto mod firm Lunas. Once again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's L-U-N-A-Z. And here's a couple of paragraphs from that article. A team of 120 people spent thousands of hours of work completing the entire project at a company's base in Silverstone. As well as installing an electric powertrain, the brakes, suspension, and steering have all been upgraded, while the light cream interior features dials and switches that faithfully reflect those of the original while incorporating modern instruments like the battery gauge. In creating this beautiful, electrified XK140, we are honored to bridge the gap between David Beckham's professional life, where he is an investor in Luna's, and his family life, said founder and CEO David Lorenz. This remarkable car is the perfect gift to his son, Brooklyn, and daughter-in-law, Nicola, on their wedding day. In every respect, this extraordinary electric classic car by Luna symbolizes a bright, positive future. Sadly, there are no performance figures for us to pour over. Even the official color named by the customer for each of Luna's cars has been kept confidential. However, the 350,000 pounds is just a starting figure, and nope, it doesn't include taxes either. So in the UK, you're looking at 420,000 pounds as a minimum. Now, Luna's is a company that takes classic cars, classic British cars, and electrifies them and resto-mods them. And David Beckham has a 10% stake in this company. And the article ends by stating, no wonder business is booming for Luna's. The company says its workforce has risen by 200% within the last 12 months, and it has a delivery waiting list that stretches out until January of 2024. Now, I jumped over to the Luna's website, which is lunas.design, and they offer five different cars in electrified version. They offer an Aston Martin DB6, a Bentley, a Jaguar, the Jaguar XK140 that we just heard about. Also, they offer a Rolls-Royce Phantom and a Rolls-Royce Cloud on their website under their philosophy tab. They state that we built Lunas to further the legacies of the most beautiful cars in the world. We know there's no better proposition than timeless aesthetics propelled by a powertrain of the future. 
we make these iconic machines a relevant and usable proposition for the 21st century. A classic car by Lunas is not just for this generation. It is to be driven and enjoyed for many more. Each classic by Lunas represents an uncompromised expression of the original. Electrification answers the questions of usability, reliability, and sustainability, and empowers owners to enjoy their cars daily. We restore, enhance, and create with knowledge that these cars have cultural value far beyond their function. The passion we have for these cars can be felt in every stitch, weld, and line of code. So another example of taking a classic car and electrifying it and trying to address some of its potential previous issues regarding reliability and dependability. So if you're no longer interested in learning how to tune your carbs or time your triple SUs or adjust your timing or rebuild your lover shocks, you can still drive a classic sports car without having to be concerned with all that if that's what you're interested in. But if you're interested in a traditional internal combustion roadster to add to your collection, but are worried that the prices are just getting out of reach for you, there's an article over at sportscardigest.com titled Recession-Proof Roadsters According to the Haggerty Valuation Team. This is due to the shortage of new models and the rising demand for older vehicles. The average price of a second-hand car grew by 28% last year. If you know where to look, however, you can get some summer-ready roadsters that are not that much affected by the price hikes. The Haggerty Valuation Team revealed that there are still two-seat convertibles that have managed to remain affordable despite the heated car market. From the data they received from the last two years, they were able to identify a group of recession-proof roadsters whose value did not decrease or increase by more than a given percent of their value. So here's the list of vehicles that they identify. First off is the Alfa Romeo 2000 Spider Veloce. Now, Haggerty's UK price guide indicates that a decent 2000 Veloce can be had for only 14,800 pounds. Once again, these are British figures for many of these here. Next up is the Austin Healey Frog Eye Sprite. Frog Eye as it was referred to in Britain and Bug Eye as we call it here in the States. It says from 2012 to 2018, top Haggerty price guide values rose from 16,000 pounds to 27,300 pounds. And then it dropped a little after that, it eventually leveled out. It also indicates the model has been highly coveted in the US. Next up on their list, the Fiat X19. And it says X19s can be sold for 20,000 pounds. And it says a Haggerty condition two, which is excellent condition, is worth less than half the value of a Concours example. Next is the Jaguar XK150, the 3.4 drophead coupe. This one getting up there in price. It says the best examples are going to run you 109,000 pounds, but a condition four car is only 35,000 pounds. The Mercedes-Benz 450 SL is next. It says a condition four example for the 450 SL can be acquired for as little as 10,000 pounds. Though a condition one car is a bit more expensive at 38,800 pounds. Next in line is the Peugeot 205 CTI, which we do not get here in the States. There's no price listed in that article. Next is the Porsche 968 Cabriolet. Although this one is getting up a little bit higher in price. It says recently a Bring a Trailer was able to sell a low mileage coupe example for $164,000. The good news is that UK collectors 
have kept their cool heads with regards to the 968. So you only need a little more than about 20,000 pounds to get a 968 that's already in excellent condition. Cabriolets were a wee bit cheaper. And rounding out the list is the TBR Chimera 500. And it states Haggerty believes that the Chimera is really undervalued as a Chimera 500 that is in really excellent shape would rarely, if ever, go past 20,000 pounds. So there's a few vehicles that if you're looking to pick up somewhat of a classic, at least a Roadster convertible that hasn't gone through the roof in its pricing over the last year or two, those might be a couple of vehicles to give some consideration to. And kind of on the flip side of that, one last article I will bring you, and this is from hotcars.com, another British site. And it says, nine classic British cars nobody cared about but are now worth a fortune. So maybe on the other side, if you already have a vehicle and are considering selling it or just interested in what the current value is, if you haven't been following that, they list these nine classics that are now much more valuable than they had been in the recent past. And number nine is an Allard K2 from 1950 to 1950. 52. This is a great sports car from a relatively unknown brand. Number eight on the list is a Jaguar Mark 10. That is a four-door sedan, 1961 through 1970. It says, unless it's a Jaguar sports car coupe, big Jaguars never really sold to the numbers they deserve. Take the Mark 10, for example, a luxuriously appointed sports sedan with classic swooping bodywork that defined Jaguars for decades, managed to less than 14,000 cars. It states, most desirable among gearheads today is the early 4.2-liter cars that use the same 265-horsepower engine from the E-Type and could achieve a maximum speed of 122 miles per hour and 0 to 60 in 9.6 seconds, a decent figure for a big sedan. Only 5,137 of these big Jags were produced in 4.2-liter guys, a few of which remain today, explaining the opening bids of $40,000 for a clean example at a recent auction. Number seven, a Lotus Cortina Mark II from 1966 to 1970. Although it did state that it's more blue oval than Lotus, they indicate one that recently sold for 200,000 pounds. Number six, not a classic sports car, but a Land Rover Defender 110 from 83 to 90. It says a mint 1984 example recently is listed for $165,000, which is almost three times as much as the current 2021 model. Number five, a Triumph TR8. It's 1978 to 1981. That was the replacement for the TR7, which had a V8 engine in it. And prices are now starting at around $35,000 for a good example. Number four, Austin Healey BN1. So that's the 1953-1954-104 that we heard about as available as a resto mod. It says it's no longer overshadowed by its bigger brother. That's referring to the 3000. It says early BN1 cars are fast approaching similar used values as their bigger engine cousins. Expect to pay 60000 plus for an original restored example. Number three, a Daimler SP250. That's from 1959 to 1962. And it says, expect to pay between 45000 and 60000 for a decent one of those. Number two, a Speedwell Sprite GT from 1958 to 1961. Although just three Speedwell GTs are known to have been built, 
one of which is currently on sale in Germany for a staggering $166,000. Number one, an MGC GT. More power and weight, less performance. Some interesting history behind this. Even in the 1960s, car makers would try anything to get owners to buy their new products. The MG, MGC GT, aimed at existing Austin Healey 3000 owners, promising better handling and performance. In a nutshell, it was all lies. Launched in 1967, the MGC GT was nothing more than a modified version of the MGB GT, equipped with a larger engine that added power but not performance. Fitted with a heavier 3-liter inline-six unit, the weight offset any power gains, with top speed slightly slower than the outgoing Healey 3000. A general lack of interest killed the MGC after two years. These rare MGs are highly sought after today, with prices hovering around $50,000. So those are nine classic British cars that hot cars indicates nobody cared about a while ago, but are now worth a fortune or close to a fortune or at least increasing in value. That was the sound of a 1956 Jaguar D-type long nose pulling away from the start on the Friday of the Goodwood Festival of Speed Hill Climb in 2009. That file was found on Wikipedia. Filed Jaguar D-Type Long Nose 1956.ogg and the file is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 originally recorded by Ed VVC. He's got some audio recordings of various cars the 2009 Goodwood Festival of speed in West, Sex, in West Sussex, England. Once again, user EDVVC. So let's continue our history of Jaguar racing and picking it up in 1953 with the Jaguar D-Type. So after the 53 racing season, Jaguar knew they needed a new car if they wanted to remain competitive in racing. And the result of that was the D-Type. So the continuation of their lettering naming Going from the C-type now to the D-type. A couple of key changes. They went to dry sump lubrication, which cut the sump depth in half, which reduced the frontal area. Originally had a 3.4 liter, 275 horsepower with triple Weber carburetors. Four-speed, fully synchronized gearbox. Updated disc brakes. Alloy disc wheels. The first low-profile tire used in racing. It was much smaller and lighter. So from the website wikicars.org, here's some more specific information of the D-Type. They state the new chassis followed aircraft engineering practice being manufactured according to monocoque principles. The central tub within which the driver sat was formed from sheets of aluminum alloy. To this was attached an aluminum tubing subframe carrying the bonnet, engine, front suspension, and steering assembly. The rear suspension and final drive were mounted directly onto the monocoque itself. Fuel was carried in deformable bags inside cells within the monocoque, another aircraft innovation. The highly efficient aerodynamic bodywork was largely the work once again of Malcolm Sayer, who joined Jaguar following a stint with the Bristol Airplane Company during World War II. Although he also worked on the C-Type, the limitations of the conventional separate chassis did not allow for full expression of his talent. For the D-Type, Sayer insisted on the minimal frontal area to reduce its height Haynes and former Bentley engineer Walter Hassan developed dry sump lubrication for the XK engine. 
by also canting the engine by over 8 degrees, resulting in the trademarked off-center bonnet bulge. The reduction in area was achieved. Care was taken to reduce drag due to the underbody, resulting in an unusually high top speed. For the long Mulsanne straight at Le Mans, a large vertical stabilizer was mounted behind the driver's head. For the 1955 season, factory cars were fitted with a revised long-nose version of the bodywork, which increased top speed even further. Mechanically, many features were shared with the outgoing C-Type. The groundbreaking disc brakes were retained, as was the XK engine. Apart from the new lubrication system, as development progressed during the D-Type's competition life, the engine was also revised. 1955 saw the introduction of larger valves and an asymmetrical cylinder head design within which to accommodate them. The Jaguar D-Type was the second racing car to have Dunlop disc brakes. The Citroën DS, introduced a year later, was the first production car with disc brakes in Europe. The Chrysler Hachu was the first American automobile with disc brakes in 1949. So the car relied heavily on aerodynamics and a lower center of gravity, reduced front surface area, and the grille was replaced with a simple air intake, and fins were added behind the cockpit for stability on certain race courses when extremely high speeds were achieved. So let's take a look at the 1954 racing season, and specifically Le Mans, which is primarily what Jaguar focused on. For the 1954 Le Mans, the 4.9 liter V12 Ferrari 375 Plus was seen as Jaguar's main rival, as Mercedes, which had been their rival the previous couple of years, did not enter as they were focused on Grand Prix racing that year, which they had just re-entered for the first time following World War II. All three of the factory D-types struggled with fuel starvation due to problems with their fuel filters, and two of the cars retired with brake and engine problems. The remaining factory car, once the problems with the fuel filters were figured out, returned and finished in second place, a lap behind the winning Ferrari. One thing of note is a privately raced C-Type came in fourth place. The Jaguar had specifically designed the D-Type because they felt the C-Type was no longer going to be competitive. And there you've got a C-Type coming in fourth overall. Now, thanks to the improved aerodynamics, the D-Type's top speed was 173 miles an hour, while the Ferrari, once again with a 4.9 liter V12 compared to Jaguar's 3.4 liter, could only manage 160 miles per hour. Now, in 1954, the factory team only raced three times, their main focus always being Le Mans. And as soon as the 54 race was over, they started preparing for the 1955 Le Mans. And overall, the factory D-types didn't participate in many races outside of Le Mans, but private teams, which had purchased D-types from Jaguar, and some of them which received a lot of support from them, raced all over the world and with great success. Let's go to 1955. The original aluminum monocoque changed to one with a steel subframe to make any needed frame repairs during the race quicker and easier. And they noted that the weight really didn't change by going to a steel versus the aluminum subframe. The aerodynamics were improved again with the long nose, which increased the overall length of the car by seven and a half inches with the extended nose and tail fins. As a result, it was 15 miles per hour faster. The 1955 Le Mans was highly anticipated with Mercedes returning to sports car racing, plus Jaguar and Ferrari battling it all out because all three of those had factory teams. At about the two-hour mark, the Jaguar D-type leading and preparing to come into the pits for its first stop, that Jaguar passing a slower Austin Healey and then cutting hard to the right across the track to make it onto the pit lane, 
Well, at Austin Healy swerved left to try to avoid collision with that D-type. And as it did so, it veered right into the path of the second place Mercedes, which was coming at a much faster speed from behind, causing that Mercedes to rear end into that Austin Healey. And the collision caused the Mercedes Benz to fly into the air, bounce across the track, over the wall, and into the crowded stands directly in front of the pits. The Mercedes driver was killed instantly, as were over 80 spectators in what would become the most tragic accident in auto racing history. The story goes that there was a lot of debate amongst the teams as to whether or not to continue racing as a result of this terrible catastrophe that had just taken place. And this race has taken place in France, and Mercedes has got their headquarters and their management in Germany, and Jaguar in Britain wasn't as easy to communicate back and forth as it is now. So it took them a while to reach management and to make decisions as to whether or not to remain in the race or not. At 1.45 a.m., and running first and third overall, Mercedes withdrew from the race in respect for the deceased. Now, the Jaguar Works team decided not to pull out and to continue racing. And as a result, a factory D-Type won the race, and a private team driving a D-Type came in third. Now, as a result of this terrible accident, many of the remaining races that year were canceled, and some European countries, including France, temporarily banned auto racing until racetracks could be reconfigured with greater safety features. And even to this day, when I was reading up on this, Switzerland does not permit any type of auto racing except for a new class of e-racers, which has recently been approved to race in Switzerland. So all as a result of this terrible crash in 1955. Now, Mercedes finished out the 1955 sports car racing season and won the overall 1955 World Sports Car Championship and then completely withdrew from all motor racing. So overall victory at Le Mans in 1955 for Jaguar, but a very dark spot in racing history. And there was a lot of debate as to whether or not to just stop the race entirely at that point, but the officials in Le Mans decided not to and to continue racing. Experts analyzing that decision afterward came to the conclusion that it was probably the best course of action to take because with all of the injuries and deaths that occurred, there was an enormous amount of emergency vehicles that were then entering the race course and entering into the area where the stands were. And with 100 plus thousand spectators at the race, had they ended the race right then and there, there would have been such a rush to the exits that the congestion and the crowds going out would have interfered with the emergency vehicles trying to get in, and there probably would have been more lives lost had they ended the race right then. So a sad mark in racing history from the 1955 Le Mans. Let's jump to 56 now. For Le Mans that year, Jaguar factory fielded three cars, and fuel injection was added to one of the factory cars, which added an additional 15 horsepower. Now, you had a number of D-types that were also entered by private teams. Within the first hour racing, two of the factory D-types were already out due to collision, and the lead car, driven by Mike Hawthorne, was in the pits with a misfiring engine, which was traced to a hairline crack in the fuel line. That cost them one hour and 21 laps, putting them out of competition. But a Jaguar D-type did win Le Mans that year with the private Scottish team Acuria Koss. 
Another private team finished in fourth place, and the one remaining factory D-Type came in in sixth place. Once again, the end of the 56 season, Jaguars thinking that the success of the D-Types might be coming to an end, and they had plans and work for the new E-Type. So they decided to pull out of the 1957 racing season and return in 58 with a new vehicle. Now, Jaguar had a bunch of D-Types remaining at the factory, so they decided to convert the remaining 25 cars into road cars and sell them as the Jaguar XKSS. Now, they had converted and sold 16 of these when a fire broke out of the factory in February of 1957 and destroyed the remaining nine vehicles, along with all the engineering plans, toolings, and jigs. So these remaining nine vehicles that were destroyed, those were the missing nine that Jaguar created just recently, a few years ago, as the continuation vehicles and named the missing nine and sold for in excess of a million dollars. Now, Jaguar, the following year, did continue to support private teams, especially at Korea Cost. They gave them quite a bit of support. And in 1957, that turned out to be the most spectacular year for the D-Type. Now, a 3.8-liter engine with fuel injection was available for a couple of cars in 1957. And that was a 3.4 bored out to 3.8. Now, at Le Mans that year, the private team at Korea Cost, which Jaguar was heavily supporting, took first place with the 3.8-liter fuel-injected engine, and also second place with a 3.4-liter. Overall, private teams driving D-Types finished first, second, third, fourth, and sixth at Le Mans that year. And the D-Types set a new record for average mile per hour at 114. Now, 1958 saw new regulations for sports car racing, and engines could be no larger than 3 liters. Now, this happens quite a bit in sports car racing when one team, one car seems to completely dominate over a few years. Oftentimes, the rules and regulations are changed to kind of even the playing field and make it a more competitive environment. So we see this in 58 with the Jaguar. We also saw it a decade later in the late 1960s so that the Ford GT40 in the 7 liter 427 version is no longer able to race at Le Mans. So Jaguar converted their 3.4 liter XK engine to 3 liters and the engines were just not that reliable. 1959 and 1960 did see private teams racing at Le Mans in D-types with the 3-liter engine, but they were not very successful. And Jaguar would not return and win Le Mans outright until mid-1980s. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Classic Sports Car. I hope you enjoyed our history of the Jaguar D-type and C-type, which we got into the previous episode. If you've got a comment or a question about the Classic Sports Car, maybe something I have stated here that's not quite correct i definitely welcome corrections i try to do a lot of research into the topics when i'm doing some of the history of this but i know sometimes going back 50 60 years sometimes that information may not be as accurate as it used to be so if you've got corrections i would be very happy to receive them and share them in an upcoming podcast you can hit me up over on facebook at the classic sports car on facebook not too much action going on there, but I'm hoping to increase the presence and activity there. You can also send me an email. I can be reached at tom at theclassicsportscar.com. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website, theclassicsportscar.com. 
please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.